0: So, of course, the term racial capitalism comes out of the South African context when uh, people are using it to talk about the way in which capital uh, dominated black working class in South Africa. Cedric Robinson borrows it, doesn't really attempt to define it, uh, but talks about it in Black Marxism, uh, in, in looking at forms of racialism. That actually predate the emergence of capitalism in which capitalism then, or capitalists then, build upon in formulating a a kind of, you know, a a racial and economic system. So I would say capitalism, uh, racial capitalism, is an acknowledgement of the embedded nature of racialist and white supremacist uh, uh, practices and ideals in capitalist formation itself, uh, and that we know that in the sense that, you know, I mean, basically it was the, the theft of Indian land, Native American land, and Black labor uh, that form the foundation for U.S. capitalism. So those ideologies help to justify the exploitation and dispossession uh, that gave capitalism its uh, its its early boost, its its early uh, accumulation, if you will. And that's something that Marx doesn't necessarily uh, factor in in terms of looking at slavery and colonialism. But it's de- you know recent historians have documented this more. Uh, carefully historians of the slavery period, uh, Edward Baptiste and uh, Walter Johnson in particular. But I just, you know, I just think that to add race, you know, Ruth, Ruthie Gilmore and, and Robin Kelly sometimes say, you know, it's redundant to say racial capitalism, racial racism is embedded in capitalism. But so often, especially today, we get a kind of colorblind leftism or, or class reductionism that seeks to uh, dissect out the intricate, intricate nature of uh, uh, of racial politics in capitalist uh, systems. And so I think naming it as racial capitalism reminds us of that uh, almost symbiotic connection.
1: Hey folks, this is Stephen Pitts, host of Black Work Talk, an organizing upgrade podcast. Here we take a look at efforts around the country to build the collective power of black workers. Today's guest is Barbara Ransby. Barbara is a professor of history at the University of Illinois in Chicago, and she has written extensively on a wide range of historical and contemporary topics from Ella Baker and Islanda Robeson to Black liberation during this time of Black Lives Matter. More importantly, Barbara strives to link her academic work with uncovering ways to radically change the world in which we live. I was enjoying prepping for our conversation when the videos of the police killing of 13-year-old Adam Toledo in Chicago were released. The police killings are emotionally draining. They get so damn tired of the same repeated cycle. The police kill someone. They distort how the death took place, either a video or an eyewitness account surfaces. Some level of community protest occurs. The responsible officer or officers enter into some sort of accountability process, be it an internal one, the formal court system, and the outcome is always, repeat, always unsatisfying. How can any judicial outcome be satisfying when, at the end of the day, you know two things, a life has been taken needlessly, and they will kill again. So the release of the video of the killing of Adam Toledo changed how he prepped for this episode with Barbara, and altered the tenor of the conversation, we begin by talking about the events in Chicago since the killing, and place this issue of policing in the important context of the larger political economy. Because when you get past the emotions of the moment, you can feel the anger and the pain. These killings occur again and again, because they are sanctioned by a larger structure and system. And key to that structure and system is our political economy. So we've been far beyond the issue of policing to talk about racial capitalism, Barbara's new project, The Portal Project, and other topics. Let's get straight to the show. Barbara, how are you doing?
0: I'm doing fine. Glad to be with you today.
1: Yeah, this is, um. You know, I was kind of getting ready for our, our conversation, and then all the videos came out with Adam Toledo in Chicago. And, and that was, um, it's just rough. Barbara's rough all the time, you know,
0: it's rough. It's rough. It's rough in Chicago. It's rough in a lot of places, rough in Minneapolis. Uh, you know, we have a, a particularly bloody history of police violence here in this city, uh, under many different mayors. And, and this, this particular, uh, shooting of this child and the, the close-up video was, was pretty gut-wrenching. I mean, he was, he was such a young child. And then to watch the way in which, uh, some sectors of the media and certainly the, the cops are trying to vilify him now. It's, it's, it's pretty, uh, pretty disgusting and disheartening and then at the same time not surprising given the history.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm from Chicago, by the way, born and raised. I did remember that. And, 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 and so what I think about is I remember when Minogue Robinson and folk formed the Afro-American Patrol League.
0: Yeah, and, and Buzz and, Palmer.
1: Right. I mean, I, I, for some reason, I had not heard of him. For some reason my mind was stuck with I was like 15 16 years old, so who knows what actually was said right but stuck in my mind is, is Robinson. I remember one time that they began harassing the police began to harass him for their attempts to do justice for, for black folks and so I remember that and I remember um Ralph Metcalf was at one time a kind of machine politician in Chicago, but when his friends, the dentist, got beaten by the police, he became much more of an active anti-police brutality person and that be, that helped be the first major major break in the machine so i have a sense of the the long long-standing standing history so what's well, going on, you, going on? I don't know, yeah, well you know,
0: let me well, you know just before we leave the history you know that is my as a historian i'm always thinking back but um you know when i first arrived in chicago in the 1990s my first introduction to all this was through uh, a civil rights lawyer black civil rights lawyer and friend of mine named stan willis who at that point was uh working with the national conference of black lawyers but was, uh, was, you know, trying to sue the police for all these brutality cases. And people were really afraid and cynical uh, about getting any modicum of justice. You know, this is when uh, John Burge, the famous uh, police uh, superintendent who oversaw these um, torture sessions, essentially, with young black men from the West Side, you know, was was in full swing. And Stan would go around and have meetings in church basements and try to get people to document their encounters with the police so that he could build a case. And I just remember those days was a very different climate uh, in terms of possibility, in terms of, you know, mass support and exposure of police violence. And so uh, we we still have the problem, but at least people are in motion around it in ways that was was harder in a different
1: period. Yes. So what is actually happening right now in this immediate case? What's actually happening right now?
0: Yeah, well, you know, the the case has gotten uh, a lot of attention. Young 13-year-old Adam Toledo, uh, Latinx kid from uh, Little Village neighborhood, was, you know, in the alley running from the cops. You know, we don't know all of what happened before, but, uh, you know, he's shot dead. And and immediately, you know, the community uh, organized. I mean, it was a while before his family could see the body, apparently. But uh, the police originally described it as an armed confrontation. And then, of course, the, uh, the body cam video arrives and it is released. And this is in contrast, I have to say, to the Laquan McDonald case uh, a number of years ago, which was the, the scandalous case in which our previous mayor refused to release the video, you know, participate literally in a cover up. I'm talking about Rahm Emanuel now uh, of this uh, shooting of this teenager um, multiple times. But this, this body cam was released right away, and what we see in the video, and I've watched it tearfully, uh, is this, this young kid uh, turning around, complying with the direct order. You know, he had been running from the cop, uh, true enough, but the cop, you know, is yelling at him, and he says, turn around. He turns around with his, with his hands up, and he's shot in the chest. Uh, it's, it's just crystal clear. Now, he may, you know, he may have had a gun in his hand before. He may have had something in his hand. We don't know. But we do know that at the moment he is shot, he is complying with police, you know, uh, uh, orders. So there have been demonstrations in all parts of the city. I went to a demonstration in Logan Square the other day, uh, which was several thousand people. And, and that was called particularly to take the issue to the mayor's neighborhood. Uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot. But there have been demonstrations uh, in the South Side. There have been demonstrations uh, in Little Village, you know, demanding uh, accountability around this. So um, it, it's uh, it's a tragic case, but a part of a larger pattern. And, and what we see in that pattern, of course, is, you know, systemic racism and state violence um, and not not bad apples and exceptions, which is the, you know, the dominant narrative.
1: Yeah. A um, friend of mine once said that, you um and talk about the idea with bad apples, but the whole idea the apples don't fall far from the tree and the whole whole tree is rotten. And when the tree is yeah, rotten, right. you'll get some bad apples, right, right. given that. Right. You've mentioned there's been both the long history of, of, of the police violence towards towards um, black and poor communities in Chicago, and also the, the pushback as well. And, and I know there's been some elections in Chicago around the Cook County D.A., If his Kim Fox was elected, right, the D.A. there, and clearly Lori Lightfoot is now mayor. How do you see what do you see being some of the successes and the challenge of these kind of movements for um, we'll call it police reform, for lack of a better term.
0: Well, um, I mean, I think what we call them is important because there's there's both the demand for reform, and then there are folks who uh have been organizing around these issues for many years who are really talking about something more radical than that, more uh comprehensive than that, which is rethinking policing altogether, uh, and talking about defunding police, uh, which is a process, not an event. But defunding police and investing in communities, investing in uh, social workers, investing in crisis intervention teams, training people to intervene in situations where they can actually de-escalate. Because when you think about it, I mean, cops are trained to shoot guns and tackle people. and, And many of the situations that that police go into uh, they have no skills to handle them and so absent that uh, you know like they say you know if you're a hammer everything looks like a nail so they they, they do what they're trained to do even though it's not what what's called for. But you know they are the, body cams but of course we've seen body cams used uh, to you know manipulated as evidence. Uh, there's now a lot of talk about you know foot chases and policies about, um, you know foot pursuits of, of, of people who are you know not arrested obviously people who are suspects um, in different cases and often those lead to uh, to tragic outcomes and of course you know we even see the traffic uh, traffic offenses m- some of the most minor things you know people with with uh, back headlight uh, back tail lights out or, or air fresheners are are subject to um, encounters that lead to violence in terms of police um, child and, you know, 21, 20 year old in, in Minneapolis. Uh, so, um, yeah, so I think, you know, there have been, uh, there is a big push for change and the, the range of things being proposed from, you know, more accountability here in Chicago, the demand for a civilian, uh, review board, uh, is, is one demand. The demand to mimic what's happening in places like Ithaca, New York, where, you know, they're talking about recreating the entire police force and turning it into a public safety department, you know, which will have different components and so forth and so on. So, you know, these things don't happen overnight and, and nobody's asking for magic dust. But I do think we have to think more comprehensively uh, about a different way of preventing harm and, um, and keeping communities safe.
1: When you think about the... Um... The battles for, for justice, basically, or, or the, the past, say say, say, say 10 years in Chicago right now. Do you see, one, a, a broadening and or deepening of the coalition around that? And also, did you see a sense of more people see the need for a, a broader sense of the reform itself? How perhaps it might have been one view of what's needed to solve the problem. But now, because of, of the repeated incidents, you see some change in people's understanding of what needs to be done.
0: Well, <laughs> I mean, there's some days where the glass seems half empty and some days it seems half full. I mean, clearly, after the George Floyd murder uh, across the country, including in Chicago, there were massive uh, demonstrations, people who previously had not gone out into the streets uh, became convinced that they had to do something. And, and that was a pretty strong statement in the middle of a pandemic for a lot of previously inactive people to say, I'm going to take some sort of stance uh, against racist state violence. So, so we have to acknowledge that uh, as, a, as a bit of a game changer. Uh, but that said, you know, there is a way in which we do go in circles and we do um, sometimes settle for cosmetic changes when uh, structural changes are needed. For example, you know, just the the election of our of our mayor, I think a lot of people thought, you know, black woman, you know, first black woman mayor, first openly queer mayor, that somehow that identity and representation was going to translate into uh, actual changes, but but that has not been the case, uh, and in fact, uh, across the country, we're seeing black police implicated in uh, violence in black communities. Black mayors and black DAs being apologists for that. I will say our uh, um, state's attorney here, Kim Fox, is uh, an improvement over uh, the um, person we had before, and that person was ousted. Alicia Alvarez was ousted uh, as a result of a community campaign, which was not just an electoral justice campaign to get the perfect candidate in, but it was saying it was setting a threshold and saying that you know basically her practices were no longer. Uh, uh, tolerable and would no longer be accepted. And so she was ousted by, you know, this large campaign. So I think, you know, there's ebbs and flow in terms of the progress. You know, progress is not linear. history's not linear. But um, so, uh, you know, Cabral said, you know, uh, tell no lies and accept no easy, vic- claim no easy victory. So we're not there yet. And I don't know, you know, as I get older, I think uh, there's not a there. There's not a destination. I mean, you know, the struggle is eternal, as Ella Baker said. So, you know, every time we make some forward progress, we have to stay vigilant um, and think of, you know, are we actually changing something fundamental and foundational? Or are we just, you know, you know, sort of moving the pieces on the chessboard around a little bit?
1: You know, one really advantage of you being a historian and also things that that is part of you being becoming a historian is the long view. So you can kind of, get, you can see an event. And you put it in the part of the process. And it's a really important thing to bring to the conversation because I, I, cause I, my concern, I know how, how I was back in the day, you know, and the change will happen tomorrow because we want it to happen tomorrow. And I think when we have that kind of short-term perspective, it can, it can skew how we see the world and how we act upon the world. And it can, it can affect our reactions to the, 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 the frustration, where the glass may be half full, half empty, but because of our thought of it will happen tomorrow, we see it being half empty. And so I really, I really appreciate your, your, your bringing the, uh, the long view into the conversation. Now, one thing I think about it is, is this whole question of how do you link the question of policing to the question of political economy? A lot of times we separate those two things. And and um, I think it's really important to bring that in because in my mind, I say, you're the historian, I'm, I'm an economist, so you kind of bring different lenses, right? Where, in my view, when you speak of structural changes, when you bring things into the idea of the political economy, you can see that's not just a bad apple, or a bad person needs to be replaced. You see, see how things fit into a structure where people who may be decent people would behave badly because of that. And I remember reading reading, I know you know Lester Spence in, in Baltimore, and Lester did a a, a study of, of policing in Baltimore. And what I recall he found was that when he's examining where you saw most of this activity in Baltimore is either in the downtown Har- in a harbor area or is in the poor community, in other words, you're trying to protect capital or suppress black poor black folks and that to me is an important lens i don't know if you've been discussing that in Chicago at all those things or what of course,
0: yes, I mean not not just in Chicago, but this is something I'm glad you asked me this because um you know, I, I work with the Movement for Black Lives and, you know, I, I look, it's not a perfect movement and, you know, n- they're not perfect people, but uh, it, there has been a lot of headway in terms of an analysis that really uh, incorporates a class analysis. I mean, it, it the document, the Vision for Black Lives that came out in 2016, talks about capitalism, talks about class. When we look at the pattern of police violence and when we look at who is warehoused in the cages that we call prison, they are poor and working class black people. You don't see a lot of uh, millionaires, black CEOs, college professors, lawyers and doctors uh, getting the same treatment. Now, this is not to say race is not a factor. It is. And, and we all uh, uh, experience racism and white supremacy. But the target of of police harassment and police violence has been exactly the population that you Uh, described around exactly the issues. And it's also policing people who are particularly in the informal economy, people who've been pushed out of uh, the formal economy. You think of an Eric Garner who is selling loose cigarettes in Staten Island to help support his family. He is vulnerable. He's economically vulnerable and he's racially targeted. Think of Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. What's he doing when he comes into contact with the police? Selling CDs out of the back of his car. You know, even... Selling CDs at this point is kind of a, such a peripheral uh, form of, of hustling, but, but he's doing that to, to, to get extra money, and he comes into this encounter uh, with the police. Or George Floyd, you know, who had had all kinds of bouts with unemployment and marginalized employment, is allegedly trying to pass a counterfeit $20 bill, you know, small little thing if, in fact, that was what was happening. But people who are in some way or another hustling because they are not uh, stakeholders in this economy, they're, they're not embedded in union jobs, they're not people who are, uh, you know, in the middle class. And so, um, you know, it's a form of control and uh, and that's what prisons do as well. So I don't think we can de-link this from an economic analysis or an indictment of racial capitalism.
1: Yeah. Um, I kind of wish sometimes that, that, that somebody would kind of look at all the, say, recent police murders and get a clear sense of what people are doing and how they're, they they're relate to the job market. You say Eric Garner is selling Lucy's and and, and so forth. I think that would be really an enlightening element of, of the conversation to get a good sense of that.
0: Yeah, I mean, just anecdotally, you know, just just go down the list. You know, mm-hmm. the uh, um, Philando Castillo is working in a, you know, as a minimum wage cafeteria worker. He's on his way home from work. I mean, you know, just the the, the minimal profile that we get of folks are people who are struggling. They are struggling economically and they are also racially targeted. Yeah. You know, we we got so much attention when Skip Gates was harassed in his house in Cambridge and, you know, all this kind of stuff. I mean, that was so exceptional that, that it had, you know, made front page uh, headlines. That is not the pattern of who in the black community is most vulnerable to police violence. And we need to name that.
1: And also, I mean, I don't remember the details, that was, I guess, what, 10 to nine years ago, 12 years ago. But if you think about it, that he was able to vigorously protest was his treatment. It was clearly it was unjust, by the way. But he was able to vigorously, vigorously protest it and emerge unscathed, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. we have seen people be killed for less than that. You know, Much anyways. less. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, know, you mentioned racial capitalism. We talked about that a bit when we discussed things around Amazon's struggle with Robin Kelly on the last episode. How do we define racial capitalism? What's your, what's your take on that?
0: Yeah. Um, you know, so Robin and I were just on a big panel on this. Uh, some South Africans pulled together uh, kind of remembering Neville Alexander. So, of course, the term racial capitalism comes out of the South African context when uh, people are using it to talk about the way in which capital uh, dominated black working class in South Africa. Cedric Robinson borrows it, doesn't really attempt to define it. Uh, but talks about it in Black Marxism, uh, in in looking at forms of racialism that actually predate the emergence of capitalism, in which capitalism then, or capitalists then, build upon in formulating a a kind of, you know, a a racial and economic system. So I would say capitalism, uh, racial capitalism, is an acknowledgement of the embedded nature of racialist and white supremacist uh, uh, practices and ideals in capitalist formation itself, uh, and that we know that, in the sense that, you know, I mean, it, basically, it was the, the theft of Indian land, Native American land, and black labor uh, that formed the foundation for U.S. capitalism. So those ideologies helped to justify the exploitation and dispossession uh, that gave capitalism its uh, its its early boost, its its early uh, accumulation, if you will. And that's something that Marx doesn't necessarily uh, factor in, in terms of looking at slavery and colonialism, but it's, you know, recent historians have documented this more uh, carefully, historians of the slavery period, uh, Edward Baptiste and uh, Walter Johnson in particular. But I just, you know, I just think that to add race, you know, Ruth, Ruthie Gilmore and, and Robin Kelly sometimes say, you know, it's redundant to say racial capitalism, racial racism is embedded in capitalism. But so often, especially today, we get a kind of colorblind leftism or, or class reductionism that seeks to uh, dissect out the intricate, na- intricate nature of uh, uh, of racial politics in capitalist uh, systems. And so I think naming it as racial capitalism reminds us of that uh, almost symbiotic connection.
1: Yeah. I like to say sometimes that from my perspective, race and class don't intersect. They're fundamentally intertwined. Right. And you can't really untie them, mm-hmm. you know, especially mm-hmm. if you try to look at the, as you mentioned, both the development of both concepts, you want to look at them separately for a second, but also the development and how they're operationalized today. They're very much fundamentally intertwined.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And to me, it's important to talk about that. And I, I, I'm glad people talk about it more and more and more what a bit concerns sometimes is the lack of applying the idea of racial capitalism. I call it the capitalism piece today. You know, so we we talked about the idea of police and political economy. Let's say today, how does it operate? Not a matter of what happened back in a certain year to two centuries ago, mm-hmm. which is important clearly, but also important to see the mechanism today as well. So I'm glad people are talking about it. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned one, one time an article. I think you wrote it in the Nation. God, my mind's so bad now. God, is this last year some time? And you're you're saying that the current uprisings are what class struggle looks like in twenty first century. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that?
0: Well, I mean what we were just talking about in terms of the victims of, uh, of of police violence, which has been the focal point of recent uprisings. Right? Is a struggle about people in very particular times and places, and those places are vulnerable, abandoned. Uh, working class black communities, you know, you think of Ferguson and all of the the politics of repression and, ex, you know, economic uh, uh, exploitation of the black community in Ferguson, the government abandonment uh, of Ferguson, the um, pillaging of, of uh, people's, you know, uh, f- through fines and so forth in Ferguson, all of that is a part of what people are reacting to when then in a particular moment there is a violent clash with police. And so, uh, you know, know, people have talked a lot also about looting. I mean, you know, I'm for wealth redistribution. Looting is not a great way to do that because it's random and people, but, but you say, well, why are people doing? They're not just crazy. I mean, people are mad that they're living in a world that says you have to have things, you know, to succeed and be happy and then not having the means to get those things. And so in some way, looting becomes an expression of, of an outrage against property uh, that that's dangled in front of people that they can't have as much as it is the violent repression of the state. And so you know, it is black working class people who have who have been at the forefront of the protests against police violence and the, the, the clashes that have happened in cities across the country. Unprecedented numbers, by the way. So if we don't see that as class struggle, I, I you know, it's just like basically black people are being purged from working class. Um, but I think a lot of left uh, discussants uh, don't factor that in.
1: You know, one thing I appreciate what you're saying, Barbara, is that trying to make these concepts that could be abstract and put them in a very, very clear historical context and concrete context. and that, that's, that I, I hadn't thought about it this way until you, as you were talking, but when you talk about class struggle or how you want to phrase it, it occurs in a concrete con- context. And what, how it occurs today would not be how it occurred when I was younger almost many years ago. And so simply, if you uncover the activism, both on the part of the people pushing back and the forms of exploitation, that's just seeing how the current mechanism of capitalism, the most important way to look at that. I was thinking, as you're talking about, I was able to be in a conference with Jack O'Dell, the the, the phenomenal person and advisor to um, King and many other things as well. It was a conference, God, maybe 15 years ago. And um, I was on a panel, and the woman, the panelist, I'm on the panel with me, was talking about segregation. What is segregation and so forth? And Jackson said, How do you define that? Be concrete. Because in the 50s, it meant you know, no school books, a bad school book, and so forth. So the idea of taking this notion and rooting it in a very specific historical period was super important to the analysis. And so when I hear you talk about that, the uprising or the current form of class struggle says that when we look at things happening. In, t- in 2020, 2021, this was happening. This is the pushback. It's a really important perspective to bring to the, to the table. Thanks yeah, for that.
0: Yeah. I mean, and it's multiple things, right? You know, it's the Amazon workers as well as the uprisings. And some things have changed and then some things resemble. I mean, you know, I remember my first... Real political memory, I would say, was uh, I was growing up in Detroit in 1967, uh, when when the rebellion happened there. And I, you know, I mean, I was 10 years old. I didn't really know what was going on, but uh, but but I have flashes of. I mean, I have very vivid memories, but I have flashes of sort of insight. Uh, for example, uh, people were targeting people who were looting in in the in the neighborhood. Were targeting places that had been particularly unfair, you know, particularly predatory toward the the uh, working class Black community that I lived in, and stores. There was a, a white-owned store I remember called Tony's Market on our block. It was the only white family, only only uh, group of white kids in my school, and they lived above the store. And it wasn't touched, you know, because there was a sense it was a tiny little business. It was in, so it wasn't just uh, uh, sort of a random uh, racial uh response. It was it was also an economic response. It was a response to unfair treatment uh to a vulnerable, economically vulnerable community, uh as as well as it was a protest against racism.
1: And also you said a reflection real relationships that existed. Right. And so in this case, they people knew who they were, yep. knew people well, knew how they were treated and therefore you get a pass, right? Yep. Otherwise you might not. So that's a really important thing. You mentioned how how the, the importance of saying racial capitalism, one important reason for doing that is because some of the left tend to forget about color being important. On the other side, do you see it's important to raise the issue amongst folk in the Black activist side of things, the idea of capitalism?
0: Of course. I mean, I, you know, I do it all the time. I mean, uh, I don't find as much resistance among uh people who are at the forefront of some of the struggles right now. Now, there is a kind of leadership strata, if you will, who are all about um, Black businesses and we need more Black CEOs and is, you know, we need more Oprahs and this sort of thing. I mean, that, those are not people I roll with necessarily. Uh, but um, but, so the, but that view is out there. Um, and I think the kind of celebrity worship that goes on among you know sort of athletes and movie stars and these kinds of people who also have great wealth but who also some of whom have you know sided with uh, um, the movement for black lives and Black Lives Matter rubric and, and demand so, so I think because it's such a um, it's become such a mass, Struggle this demand around police violence, in particular. I think the struggle to insert a class analysis into it and to remind people the terrain on which we struggle is very important. And and you know many of us try to do it at every opportunity. Uh, but um, but yeah, it's it's not universal uh, for sure. But I think the people who are serious and trying to do day to day organizing get it. Most of them. Um, so that's heartening. Yeah.
1: You know, I, I keep mentioning I'm from, from Chicago. I'm a Chicago born and raised, and will always be a Chicago in many ways. So I follow things from the distance in some ways. And, and what was, I've been always been fascinated to see the battles in our city council elections in Chicago. Because in my mind, you have Mayor Daley, and that was it, right? And all those things. And then we had, then we had Mayor Daley, too. I wasn't around then, right? Mm-hmm. But I was, in following things from a distance, I saw that you had, I guess, in the last elections in Chicago, I guess, the five or six people who were elected who openly identified with, with the Democrat Socialist of America, DSA. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting is that my memory of those six people, five were Latino, and one with a black woman who wasn't tightly in DSA. So I thought it was fascinating to give my knowledge of the history of struggle in Chicago, mm-hmm. how you didn't have that kind of openly socialist tendency, have the have strength to get elected, get elected to city council the like way you did in the Latino community. Any thoughts on what that, why the differences exist? i not trying to say one better than the other, by the way, because the things are as they are, right? But I don't know why it exists, though. Any thoughts on well, that? Well,
0: I, I, I might not frame it quite that way. So, you yeah. know, DSA is an interesting organization, and I've written about this. Uh, you know, I think, you know, DSA has done a lot of organizing, a lot of electoral work, uh, much of it very good. I think it's still an internal struggle to come to terms with the importance of racial justice. I think that was one of the big weaknesses of the Bernie Sanders campaign of not uh, dealing with that head on. Here in Chicago, though, uh, we have we have that socialist caucus. We also have and Jeanette Taylor, by the way, is the one yeah. uh, person who's in there who I spoke to just today. Uh, uh, but but we also have support for and accountability from like Rosana Rodriguez, for example, uh, Puerto Rican socialist. Uh, uh, alder person is one of the first people on the scene. If there is a protest in a black community and people are arrested, she, we call her we call Jeanette. So it's it's it, you know it we we have to not also be kind of reductionist about the, the the representational politics. There are people who are clearly aligned with Black community struggles who are in that group, um, and then there are people who aren't. Maria Haddon, for example, um, is another person who was elected who wasn't in DSA but ha- came out of Black Youth Project One Hundred. So um, you know, so I think there has been forward movement around progressive race and class politics uh, in, in terms of people going into electoral justice work. I don't want them to get sucked into the vortex of the Democratic Party, either locally or nationally. That's always a risk. But um, but here in Chicago, it, it has been um, it's been an interesting journey to actually have some folks pushing back in city council who are really connected to movement, uh, some of them Latino and some of them black.
1: Yeah, And I didn't didn't mean to kind of raise up DSA as being the model going forward. Yeah, I know. It's more the idea that you had an explicit set of politics emerging with the capacity to be on city council Mm -hmm. in the Latino community. They didn't have the same sort of explicit politics raised on the black community getting elected. That's all I was trying to get a sense Mm -hmm, of on the wise. And and I wouldn't expect a mirror image, by the way. Because the idea of having things that are ground historically means that they will come out differently. I'm just wondering why. I I always want to ask them the question and got you on the phone. So I asked you the question, Barbara, pushing this spot. That's all that it was. (laughs) Well,
0: you know, I think, you know, for example, Movement for Black Lives developed uh, after 2016, developed and invested a lot of time and energy and I think resources into an electoral justice project, uh, which uh, supported Cori Bush and uh, a a number of people around the country who are progressive electeds. Uh, I think we are still negotiating that sort of dialectic between movement building and electoral work. You know Mo Mitchell doing the work with Working Families Party, who comes out of Movement for Black Lives. You know this is stuff nationally, not just in, not not uh, primarily in Chicago. But I think navigating what the relationship of the Black Freedom Movement at this moment is to electoral justice work post-Obama, uh, you know, with the Congressional Black Caucus being uh, what it is, uh, which is not what it was. Uh, it, I think all of that is a process. And so, um, you know, being, being figured out. I have a lot of um, interest and uh, curiosity and uh, I think hope in uh, people like Antonia Lee and uh, Toussaint Lossier and others who are doing this Left Roots project, which is a people of color-led socialist project uh, that has a clear anti-racist analysis, understands anti-blackness, has that at the center, uh, but is clearly about a critique of and a challenge to racial capitalism. Uh, They don't do electoral work per se, but they are talking strategy and they're talking ideology and they're talking rethinking, you know, how we understand um, 21st century capitalism. So, you know, if that evolves and, and, and materializes into something, you know, we may see, practice in places like chicago and new york and elsewhere uh that gets black people in motion uh, in and a one different way
1: about these conversations barbara is all of a sudden things pop up in my head right? okay because so i, just, I just thought about you wrote a book on ella baker
0: i did and, and, it was a, remember, it was a long time ago
1: <laughs> yeah but i remember it too i remember it and and i just thought about so ella baker from my standpoint clearly other the left okay and she clearly was in was, was supportive of SNCC and trying to help them move along the way. How do the tensions t- 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 we're talking about in terms of being rooted in communities, having a political vision, having a sense of the limitations of capitalism, how were those things unfolding inside of SNCC at the, back in those times?
0: In terms of in, confronting capitalism and, and the process of doing the Black Freedom Movement work? Something.
1: Yeah, It's how they talk, how 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 it unfolding was talked about. In other words, so, yeah. so that because what I heard you saying around Chicago today is that there are people who have a sense of the limitations of capitalism who are active in doing things and so forth. May not be in a DSA format. Mm-hmm. Fully get that right. Mm-hmm. And so the same thing I'm I'm assuming is unfolding back in the day in the early '60s where people had a sense of a broader struggle. Yeah, they're not in the CPUSA, by the way. Um, but they were dealing with people who were in motion who may not have the same level of understanding of society, but both there's a need to do the good work, I mean, the deep work amongst amongst regular folk, but also think about a broader analysis. How did that unfold? That's that's what I'm getting at.
0: Yeah, no, I I mean, of course it was a different period, but um, when we look at the kind of political trajectory of somebody like Kwame Ture or even Bob Moses, Zahara Simmons, you know, people who come out of SNCC, uh, you know, much of their class and race analysis and the anti-imperialist analysis, by the way, um, you know, emerged out of that work in SNCC of, of um, you know, oppressed uh, both rural and southern urban communities. Uh, there were, you know, people talk about these great uh, all-night-long debates in SNCC, you know, Charlie Cobb and others. I mean, it was, a, it was a place of Black intellectual debate, and I don't mean that in an academic sense at all, Black intellectual debate. About how they were understanding um, a world and a changing world on the ground in struggle uh, against white supremacy and uh, uh, economic exploitation in places like Mississippi, and so uh, you know, you know, fierce fierce debates went on about leadership, about demands, about voting and uh, its power and its limitations. And but I do think it was it was a bit different. The political, the wholesale political disenfranchisement of Southern Black populations at that point was much more of a direct strategy of control. There is continued voter suppression and disenfranchisement today, but it it is not uh, the wholesale exclusion of Black people from the political process. People have been incorporated into the political process without actually disrupting the system. Um, But but in many of those communities, uh, an electoral strategy meant something uh, a bit more radical, given the mechanisms of control at that time. So, I think that particular part of the conversation uh, might have been different in, in, as a tactical and a political conversation.
1: Um, that last thing is so important, Barbara, because um, we, we, we 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 see the power of the vote today, you know, and 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 the importance of the vote, given the attempts to suppress the vote, mm-hmm. and we see the insurrection taking place. But in, in a lot of ways, that's the main way we see the the social control. Mm-hmm. And what you just said was that really in the, in the 60s, in the South in particular, it was much more of a dominant role than it is today. And mm-hmm. it'd be fascinating to tease that out. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe it might be part two of our conversation. I'll have <laughs> you on to do. This has really been great, by the way. You started the Portal Project. Tell me more about this.
0: Yeah, what we're way. very excited about that. You know, um, a lot of my... Uh, I guess, career, if you will. Um, I mean, working my day gig as a, as a historian and a, and a professor has been, you know, around, you know, writing books about black struggle and particularly radical black women and, uh, and, and trying to, to be in conversation with the historical actors and the communities that are at the center of those narratives. Um, but, uh, but I've also tried to connect activist and academic community. So so transformative radical scholarship that's going on in university spaces, and then exciting discussions and debates around strategy, around application of ideas, you know, around how do we change the world inside organizations and building movements? You know, how do we bring those conversations together? And I do think we're in a moment uh, where there's a real conjuncture uh, of of different crises. Uh, The world is changing rapidly. I mean, climate is one obvious change, but even capitalism, the nature of capitalist um, uh, exploitation, the contradictions within capitalism, I think, are coming to a new uh, uh, level. And so how do we put our heads together and ask fundamental questions about social change in this period? What's possible? How do we understand the landscape on which we do this work? So we're bringing together a hundred Activist artists and scholars uh, Robin Kelly, Angela Davis, Naomi Klein, Kianga Yamada Taylor are going to be the Marielli Franco Fellows, and they're going to help facilitate conversations over a two year period with a large uh, group of, of, of activists and other scholars, uh, as well as artists. We're going to have working groups, public discussions, and forums. We're going to have artists come through and capture some of those conversations and translate them into uh, short videos and artistic performances, etc., to really try to jumpstart uh, rigorous discussion and debate about critical questions. And the three entry points, you know, are those movements that I think hold the best potential for uh, galvanizing some sort of transformative change, and that is the demand for abolition, the demand for economic democracy, that is the indictment of racial capitalism, in uh, the climate justice movement, uh, so those are the sort of entry points into this bigger discussion of how do we change the world, essentially. Um, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very excited about it. You know, there are people inside academic spaces, and then people outside of academic spaces. We've also been talking to, um, uh, you know, people who have centers and, and and institutes at other institutions, you know, about parallel projects that they're engaged in. So. Uh, we hope to have a conference at the end of this year and a publication uh, that Haymarket Books is going to work with us on at the end of next year.
1: That's cool. That's that's cool. Um, yeah. As you're feels little,
0: about it feels a little um, big and ambitious and possibly unwieldy, but hopefully we'll make it happen.
1: <laughs> that makes it exciting, though, in some yeah, ways. Yeah, exactly. Because it's one thing to have the plan, the work plan, and da 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 dot. And clearly, I know you have one, by the way, but the idea that sometimes we get is really scripted, and it gets so stilted sometimes. The idea mm-hmm. that you're going to kind of let people fl- flow. I use the expression, you know, not for my, my creation, by the way, let a hundred flowers bloom. is a really important way to simply see kind of the spirit, of, the idea of experimentation is really important. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, this should be great, Barbara. Yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing what happens in that.
0: Well, you know, um, you mentioned experimentation and you know, this idea of um, um Kind of radical imaginaries. I mean, what do we? We are at a point where so many people understand the system is not working for us, um, and I think you know something I've learned from people like Colette Pichon Battle and other you know Black activists in the climate justice movement is we've we've got to find a different way to be. It's just not it's just not an option. And so, what does that look like? Um, keeping communities safe, uh, producing the things that we need without killing the planet. Um, you know sharing in a way that is non-competitive and I mean you know working having a work day that doesn't either kill us or uh, you know make us completely marginal you know so some people are pushed out of the work world the, the, the wage work world altogether the formal economy and then others are working 24/7 uh, so how do we engage technology so all these big questions, Um, I think really force us to be bold and ambitious in our imagination for new possibilities. And I, I see a lot of things happening, you know, the solidarity economies and um, cooperatives that are emerging, you know, uh, probably more about that than I do even, but um, uh, there's a lot of experimentation that is, is very exciting in terms of possibilities for the future.
1: Yeah. My kind of intro is the whole question of the economy Mm -hmm. and and, and workers. Mm -hmm. And, I don't have a sense of what the answer is. It's kind of it's okay, by the way. Sometimes I'm okay, I'm not knowing the answer. Just sometimes, <laughs> by the way. A- and, and my kind of trade-off is the balance between having control over your activity, which in my sense, in the, the today time period, means a very small-scale operation, versus having a larger sort of impact, imp- 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 imprint on society, mm-hmm. which means much more messier Existence with the current powers to be, mm-hmm. you know, and, and how that kind of tension unfold over time. And what I'm best settled on is the idea of how do you empower workers, give them power to make those decisions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And maybe the decision is well, we're going to form on Southside Chicago some sort of, you know, mutual aid cooperative society. Or it could be we're going to simply have a badass union and fuck Amazon. <laughs> and I'm cool either way, be honest, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and mm-hmm. I think what happens sometimes, we lean toward one or the other as being these this strategy. And to me, the most important thing is how do you actually empower folks to make collective decisions that, that that work for them, along with trying to, to always raise the sense of what the problem is and what's possible. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah. we'll see what happens.
0: Yeah, we'll see what happens.
1: So I'll check back in a year for the answer. Okay, <laughs> and, and I'll, I'll be good. I'll sit back and enjoy retirement and check back in a year and see, see what happens. Okay? We don't
0: ever really retire, do we? <laughs> so much um, work
1: to do. Oh, yes, we do. Make sure we're clear. Okay. And we do retire. Okay. okay. I'll show you the way. Okay. I do have people saying that the last six months or so working formally, I, I went to a pre apprenticeship program, meaning I took every Friday off mm-hmm. to learn how to be a retiree. Wow. And, and, and therefore, I, and now I became a full fledged retiree when I, I journeyed into that position. Yeah. So, yes, we, we should get there, okay?
0: Wonderful.
1: Um, the world we deserve to have, winning the world we deserve, we deserve to have. Um, what's your vision of Black freedom in the new world? What's your vision of that? What's
0: my vision of Black freedom? Well, I, I, I think I've given up on freedom as a destination point. I, I, don't, I don't have an ideal. Um, but, uh, you know, the people have the basic things that they need, that people can find uh, and experience joy as a regular part of their existence, that people are valued and able to do meaningful work, and that we forge uh, deep and meaningful and uh, um, loving communities. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, maybe that sounds, um, doesn't sound, I don't know, materialist enough or something like that, but, uh, but having, having the material things that we need, obviously is a foundation, you know, healthcare and uh, housing and, and all of this. But I think also we, we have to imagine a different way of being with each other, with the planet um, in the world. And it's almost been so distorted and perverted uh, by capitalism, you know, that we're, we're working all the time. We're stressed all the time. We're mad all the time. We're uptight all the time uh, with each other, with ourselves. So, you know, so being able to, the human beings being able to relate to each other uh, in, a, in, a, in a joyful, meaningful, productive, generative way uh, and, and all of the myriad of things that need to happen to get us to that point. Um, so, uh, you know, we could, we could talk a lot about that.
1: Yeah, that's a good place to be. Um, so yeah, it's it, it maybe it's gonna be a process. How do you see building the, the the political coalition needed to win that kind of thing?
0: Yeah, no, that's that's, that's more of a <laughs> that, that's that's a different kind of answer. Um, you know, I think. Uh, we have to take building new political formations very seriously. I mentioned the group Left Roots. Uh, there's also a coalition called the Rising Majority, which comes out of the Movement for Black Lives. It's a multiracial, people of color-led, multisectoral um, coalition. And partly building trust, building relationships, uh, becoming educated about, you know, we become so siloed in terms of people working on single issues. And, of course, as Audrey Lloyd said, we can't build Single issue movements because we don't live single issue lives. So uh, to take that step and 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 talk about large campaigns that encompass multiple issues that aren't just electoral, I think that's the other danger I worry about. That we have to build an electoral component to our movements, but we can't have voting be people's only political expression and identity. Clearly, um, so I think I think some of the mutual aid work has been important because I think we have to engage in both service. Uh, and struggle. So, um, so I think it's a multi-pronged approach. I think it is about building relationship and strategy. And I think it's about doing some kind of ideological work, you know, really talking about how do we understand uh, the world as we know it. You know, some of the theorists that people are uh, often invoke and cite have been dead for a hundred years. They can't do the heavy lifting of understanding this world that we live in. So we have to create spaces where we can do deep thought, discussion, and study together. At the same time that we go out uh, and engage in strategies uh, uh, of resistance that are sometimes defensive, um, and sometimes they are those kind of you know what we sometimes call uh, um, uh, what's been called you know since non-reformist reforms you know those reforms that actually have the potential of dislodging um, you know the 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 foundations or or disrupting the logic uh, of 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 racial capitalism. So um, you know study and struggle. Building relationship and coalition, being serious about strategizing and having short-term and long-term uh, plans.
1: Yeah. now I hear you talk about the value of mutual aid and also engaging in uh, non reforms reforms. What I think about as an important outcome of those activities is the building of community.
0: Okay,
1: mm-hmm. like I think that 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 not I mean community and kind of a I love sit on, but more kind of a, a sense of tight bonds that say that I will throw down because of my community.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know,
1: and, I, and I think about like the Amazon battle and, and, and Bessemer is that's one thing to say that the country is more pro-union than ever before, right? Or the other sort of things. But the question is someone who actually has a job in, in Bessemer, Alabama, do they want to risk that job for, for themselves in the future? Mm-hmm. And that notion of saying, yes, I will do that, it stems from sense of community. That because of some reason, I'll run through a brick wall for this this idea. Mm-hmm. And that since the community isn't, isn't there, that lowers our capacity to win, Barbara, actually. Mm-hmm. So it's not just a matter of, you know, helping people out or, you know, fighting for reform. It's, it's stitching together a fabric that will kind of empower folk mm-hmm. to go further and stronger. So mm-hmm. I'm really excited about are doing those things. You
0: no, know, yeah. I think that's important. I mean— uh you know, individualism, like how can, I, how can I as a single individual navigate an unjust system? That's what we're encouraged to, you know, to, 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 to embrace as a, as a survival strategy. Uh, and what I often say to young people, you know, especially when we talk about freedom, sometimes freedom gets uh, reduced to individual freedom. I was like, you know, if we really want a more just society and more uh, a, a more just and equitable community, we might actually have to give up some freedoms. You know, so being able to jump in my car and drive wherever I want, whenever I want, that's compromising the ability of people to actually breathe clean air. Maybe that's a freedom, an individual freedom that I have, that if I really believe in the well-being of community and if I get some joy, satisfaction, uh, sense of purpose from contributing to that, I may actually sacrifice that individual uh, uh, freedom for the sake of, of, of a greater collective good. And so I think that's, you know, you might be the person on the picket line that gets, you know, arrested or, you know, fired, uh, but you're part of something bigger than yourself. And I think that's the spirit of community and of resistance uh, that we have to embrace if we're going to actually
1: win. And when it happens, it's, it's no often seen as being a sacrifice. Mm-hmm. This is what I do mm-hmm. for, the, for, the, for the greater good. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the point to me. You've got to push more and more towards. Um, mm-hmm. Let me shift things a bit and focus on you, <laughs> um, Barbara Ransby. You mentioned a bit before some stuff in Detroit, but what were some of your aha moments that brought you into the movement?
0: <laughs> My aha moments. Uh, well, I think I, I mentioned, you know, 67 Rebellion when I was I was 10 years old. I, I think back to that as re- really being a pivotal, a pivotal moment. I was... Um, uh, I went to a school in Detroit that had a free breakfast program that the Panthers ran in the basement of the school. And so it was the first time I saw uh, Black men wearing aprons <laughs> and serving oatmeal. So uh, so both it was a gender, you know, kind of reversal of, of roles, um, but it was also they were talking about ideas, and I, I didn't really understand them all at the time, but I wanted to. Uh, and I remember buying Black Panther newspapers, uh, on you know, the corner. I mean, Detroit. When I was growing up in the seventies, there was Jimmy and Grace Boggs. There was General Baker. There was a the League of Revolutionary Black Workers. Uh, there was there was a lot of activity uh, going on, and you could, uh, you know, there were newspapers, there were meetings in various places that you could go to almost anonymously um, and kind of eavesdrop and learn before you actually uh, took a dive and, and and joined something or went to a, a rally or something like that. And so that was the kind of milieu. That helped to shape me. Walter Riley, who is now, you know, I think, you know, a lawyer out in California, Boots Riley's father, uh, was an important um, political mentor in Detroit at that time. So those were my aha moments. And I think also, you know, growing up in a family of, um, you know, black working class people who were just just decent, hardworking people who were very generous, who, um, you know, it's just some of the best people ever. And they had nothing. And I think I always, uh, had that juxtaposition in my mind, like how can such good people be treated so badly in this society? And, uh, they weren't bitter, uh, but, but, uh, But it was just a glaring. And when I and then they sent me to they eventually sent me to Catholic school because they thought that was a better school. Uh, And so then I was around middle class kids who went on vacations, whose car didn't break down all the time, (laughs) you know, and so I saw the contrast. And so I think that was that was another aha moment, just reconciling the middle class world that I was witnessing um, with my my parents. uh, Pretty difficult lives.
1: It's funny, Barbara. When you said Catholic school, you lowered your voice. Like, oh my God, made your secret Catholic school. <laughs>
0: yeah, it made me made me into an atheist.
1: <laughs> okay, but I'm also sure introduced
0: that... me to liberation theology. I tell you, I met some pretty radical nuns who had been in Central America and so forth. I remember Ooh, going man. the first I uh, first documentary I saw on the coup in Chile and the Austerovayende was uh, was with these radical nuns. So it was a contradictory experience.
1: Ah, so, so they're doing their versions of God's work, in other words. Right? Yeah. That sounds good. So what books are you reading now? Anything on your shelf that you want to talk about?
0: What am I reading? Um, I'm, re- I'm looking at this Ibram Kendi and Keisha Blaine, 400 Souls. And, and I, you know, it's, it's an amalgam of all these different people, uh, many of whom I know, who are writing uh, interesting short, short pieces. So I'm looking at that. Uh, I also just got um, Mark Lamont Hills, Except Palestine. So I'm going to dive into that. So those are, you know, I I actually am reading, I'm I'm trying to write something on um, uh, the 21st century justice movements and, um, you know, what what does the notion of revolution mean in the 21st century? Mm -hmm. So I'm reading a a lot of chapters from a lot of books uh, uh, around capitalism and capitalism's crisis, uh, some of them by people who want to save it. But um, so, yeah. So that's that's a pile over in the corner of my study.
1: so when can we expect the word to be given
0: <laughs> i i'm i'm I don't know, you know, I'm a slow writer, but I'm thinking you know by the end of the year, right. I should have finished something.
1: That's great. That sounds good I look forward, and I think we look forward to seeing what comes out of the kind of the explorations of, of what to do. um I love music, I yes, love, love music, um, yeah God, I would love to pick your brain on Motown to try That's another conversation by the way. Oh yeah, I, well, yeah, that was. That was my my growing up years. What's fascinating, by the way, is I love jazz also, and I see more people who have Detroit roots in jazz mm-hmm. that I didn't know about. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, yep. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yep. yeah. Yep. But what music is, is is you listen to now that kind of really moves you, kind of keep, gets you up in the morning and drives you forward because it's so inspiring.
0: <laughs> well, you know what I was just listening to. Um, speaking of jazz. Uh, uh, Terry Lynn Carrington and Angela Davis were in conversation uh, the other night uh, talking about Terry Lynn's work and, and the politics of women in jazz mm-hmm. uh, and her jazz and gender justice institute that she has at the Berklee School of Music, uh, which sounds very exciting. So I, I was listening to her quite a bit the other night. But you know what? I love Mina Simone and Bob Marley. Mm, okay. They get me, you know, when I'm really, when I need re-anchoring, uh, those are two voices that uh, that re-anchor them neither of the motown as you know but um but those are two voices that re-anchor me yeah yeah sounds great. redemption song and a little sugar in my bowl <laughs>
1: <laughs> um kind of different some ways but both can be very, very 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 powerful i love redemption song i love different versions of that that, that song yeah and, um that's wonderful. Barbara, this has been great, Barbara. Thanks a whole lot for this. Okay, Thank you, really Stephen. Yeah. You know, we, we've been on, on get some boards together and some meetings together. But we haven't actually sat down and talked. Yeah, it's kind of cool nice. to sit down and talk to see what's happening and just hang a little bit. So thanks yeah, a lot for
0: this. Yeah. One day we'll may, maybe be in the same room together having a conversation. How about yeah. that?
1: I may be in Chicago this summer. I'll let you know, though. Okay. okay. You know. All
0: right. All right. Take you. Th- thank you for having me.
1: It was good to talk with Barbara. Her historical perspective is good to hear, given the many, many flashpoints that occurred today. Freedom is a process, probably more so than a destination, she's right. And it'll take time to do the patient work needed to stitch together the coalitions and the movement to different things that we need to sustain us along the journey. So thanks for joining me this week on Black Work Talk. I hope this podcast can grow to become part of the network of our movement for change. We need your help as you build the Blackwork Talk community. Please subscribe to the podcast, wherever you find your podcast, and go to Patreon to become a sustainer. And beyond the financial support, I would love to hear from you. What do you think about the show? Any suggestions for future guests to future topics to explore? Please let me know. Reach out to me at stephen at blackworktalk.com. I promise to get back to you until the next episode, stay safe and be well.